Good morning. Good morning. We're in a series called God's Family Series. And if this is your first time with us, you can catch up with us online. We have all our sermons, audio and video version of it. Um, I recommend that you watch the video version because a lot of times um, I use a lot of things on, this, on, this, on the screen. And today is no exception. Today we're going to use, today there's a lot of things to talk about. So I'll just get started. Um, Today, I want to talk about a lot of cultural context. So if you're like into history and want to know about how the people lived in Bible days, today we're going to be talking a lot of that. So we'll talk a lot about cultural context. And then we're going to go into the scriptures and talk about this section in Luke chapter 8. And along the way, I want to make three observations. So uh, we have a lot to cover today. So let's start off with the setting. So I want to give you a map of Israel. This is Palestine. Here we go. There we go. And we're going to zoom to the top part right there. That's the Sea of Galilee. You probably heard that term before, Sea of Galilee. And that's where a lot of the stories of the New Testament takes place, uh, especially in the Gospels. Because this is the place where a lot of people had cities. You can see this Chorazin and there was Capernaum where Jesus, that, that was his headquarters for most of his ministry, Gerasenet and so forth. So a lot of Jewish cities on the western side, the left side of, of the sea. And today, uh, if you were here last week, you'll know that Pastor Lori talked about Jesus crossing the sea, the Red Sea, uh, the Red sea that's Old Testament, the Sea of Galilee. So he started from the place called Capernaum, which you see at the top right there, and then he sailed all the way to the place where a lot of scholars have some doubt, like they all have discussions about where exactly Jesus, you know, docked his boat. Um, but the most likely place is that place called Hippus that you see right there on the right side. And Hippus, uh, and so we'll talk more about Hippus when we get there. But first I want to talk about Capernaum because that's where Jesus came from. Okay, so Capernaum is a Jewish city, and I want to talk about what they valued. Okay, there's a lot of things to talk about, but what I want to talk about what they valued. Because this is a Jewish city, they valued something called purity. They valued purity. Now, what that means is this. Jewish people, they love to be close to God, and they, li- they love to be favored by God. They want to do everything it takes to make sure that their connection with God is, is, is they want to make sure it's not interrupted. They want to make sure that it's clean how they connect with God. And so what they started believing was if we follow the laws, the rules that God gave us in the Old Testament, that must be, this is what they're convinced of, that must be the way in which God is pleased with us. If you follow these rules, then God will surely say, oh, you are my children, you are my part of my family. And for that reason, they value purity. So they looked through the scriptures, they studied it, they memorized it, and they eventually got to like the book of Numbers. And chapter five, it says, okay, it says, you should not touch any dead bodies. Like, okay, so in order to stay pure and connect with God, we got to stay away from dead bodies. Got it. Okay, and then they keep reading. In the same chapter, it says that you should not come in contact with bodily fluids, like like blood and, and, you know, ulcers that you know ooze out i don't know like like do not come in contact with that unless that you'll be unclean they're like okay we want to be want to be pure so we're going to make sure that we're not going to touch any other people's bodily fluids got it okay got it and then they read through the scriptures and they see like okay in order to to be pure you want to make sure that that you're not living amongst the pagans like pagans yeah people who don't believe in god like okay we want to make sure that we stay as far away from the people of uh, people who are atheists or people who believe in other gods we want to make sure we stay as far away from them as possible that's the kind of things that they really valued purity they wanted to stay clean in the eyes of god now, whether if they accomplish that or not is a whole different sermon, okay? But, but to them, that's what they believe. So whether if it's true or not, at least from their perspective, that is what they believe to be true. If we stay away from these people that don't believe in our God, if we make sure that we don't touch dead bodies, as long as we follow these rules, we're going to be okay with God. That's what they believed. Okay, so let's look at the map again now. I want to highlight, highlight this bottom part right here where Hippus is. 
the part that's highlighted down there, that area is the tip of a land, a part of, land, a part of the, the area called Decapolis. The reason it's called Decapolis is because there are 10 Greek cities there, and scholars and historians disagree on which 10 they're specifically talking about. But just for our sake, somewhere over there, there's 10 cities uh, that was called Decapolis. They're Greek cities. Now, eventually, the Romans took over it, but they allowed the, the Greek influence to, to go on. So Decapolis is a place where there's a lot of military veterans who live there. People who fought wars on behalf of Greece and eventually on behalf of Rome, they ended up living there. And in these cities, okay, um, there's different sets of cultures in the Jews. The Jews, remember the Jewish people, they valued purity. These people value something completely different. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, and these people who lived here, they loved the Greek culture. Okay, so, th- so I want to show you a picture of, this is the area, this is what we call the Gerasenes. Um, so this is what it looks like. And they believe that years ago when it was more affluent, here, here's a computer rendering of what they thought the place looked like, uh, where there's this big courtyard, and this is a flea market. People came here to trade, to buy stuff, to meet with each other. This is what they use this place for. Now, that open area, that open courtyard, the round courtyard you see on the screen right now, that's called the Kalibe. Can you say Kalibe? Kalibe, very good. Kalibe is basically this open area where people can meet and greet and hang out have conversations, but in the very middle of it, there's a little uh, pillar there, you see that right there. Remember how I said this place is Greek influenced, but it's part of the Roman Empire? To remind the people who live there as a Greek person, to remind them that who's really in charge, even though the culture seems Greek, but the people who are really in charge of the Romans, at the center of the Calibe, they had a statue of the Caesar, which would probably look something like this. This isn't found there. This is somewhere else, but they think this is what it would look like. Okay, So so basically it's saying, I know you're enjoying your Greek culture here and the influence of Greece and all that kind of stuff, the, the philosophies and the teachings of the Greece, you know. But I want you to remember that, that Caesar's in charge. So that's the, the culture of just across the Sea of Galilee, you'll find a culture like this that's completely different than the people who lived in Capernaum. So Jesus takes his boat and he goes over to this side. Now, this picture of Caesar, I want to give you some background to who Caesar is. So Caesar... Okay, he, by the time we find him in the New Testament, he has called himself God. And by the time that Jesus is walking on this earth, he, the, the, the Caesar at the time was Caesar Augustus, the second Caesar. And the reason why he's such a big deal is because he calls himself the son of God. And the reason why he calls him the son of God is because his father, his adopted father, Julius Caesar, okay, he fought his way from being a military leader. He fought his way with his own team of military soldiers he fought his way to the top to a point where he could call himself God. And because he called himself God, he called, Augustus called himself the son of God. Now, this army that, that helped fight Julius Caesar get to the very top, this army, he handpicked them and trained them. He said, I want you on my team, I want you on my team, I want you on my team. And he eventually had 5,000 to 6,000 people on his team. And that team was called Legion. That was called a Legion. That was a military term for a group of 6,000, 5,000 to 6,000 Uh, soldiers. Now, he had a lot of legions under his control, but the one that he liked the most was the 10th legion, and that legion was called the Legio, Roman numeral for 10, X, Fratensis, and that usually, I want to show you an image right here. This is uh, something people found. So the eagle right there is a symbol of the Roman Empire. Okay, now, I don't know if you can see the middle one with the two chocolate donuts on the bottom. <laughs> but it says L-G, that stands for legion, legio. The X in the middle stands for tenth. 
And on the right, you can't see it, but there's an F. That stands for Fertensis. That's the name of that troop. Okay, that legion. And the insignia, the, 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 the mascot or the thing that they go by, the animal they go by is the boar. Okay, so I want you to get this, I want you to understand this before we read the, read the passage today. We have a guy named Caesar who came to power because of a legion of five to 6,000, and they were known by the symbol of the pig or the boar. Okay. Are we clear so far? Because I want to make sure that we get this. Here's a coin that people, they just, the archaeologists discovered. It's bad resolution. But as you can see, on the bottom, there's an X down there. That represents the 10th legion, and there's a boar, right? And so this group has been around for, by the time Jesus, Jesus comes around, this group has been around for about 100, 200 years. And the reason they keep this up is not that these people know how to live 200 years. As people die at war or as people retire, they recruit new people into this group. Okay, and in this group... If you've been recruited into this, there was a saying in the first century. It says, oh, you've been recruited into the herd of pigs. They called it the herd of pigs, right? So imagine you are living in Capernaum, and you're a fisherman, and you're a Jew. So every morning you get up, and you're casting out your nets. You're on your boat. You're doing your own thing. And you're like, this is a beautiful day that God has given us, right? But then you're reminded every once in a while when you look up to the other side of the sea, or it's actually a lake, the other side of the sea, the Galilee, and you see this, this Greek building there, and you're like, gosh, even though I'm having a good day here, I just feel like the Romans are watching over my shoulder at all times. Imagine if you wake up in the morning and you're, 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 you're sowing seed in your garden, and you look over the sea and you realize, you know, today's peaceful, but tomorrow they could get on their horses, come over here, and burn down our village. And so they started having these desires, these wishes. You know, if they had a top 10 wish list, it would be, man, I wish these guys would just move out of here. As a matter of fact, this is what a historian said. He said this, the Jews desired to drive the Roman soldiers back into the sea because they came from Italy, right? They came from the Mediterranean Sea. To dismiss a regiment or squadron of Roman soldiers in that way was a dream of several revolutionary leaders in the first century. So they had a saying, they had a saying in the first century, these Jews, they would say things like, we wish we could hurl the pigs back into the sea. Okay, so that was the desire of the people living in the first century. They're like, we don't want these people living in our homeland. I don't know why they're living right across the sea from us. But right now, all we know is that the people who are not like us, we have, a, we have our own value system, right? Our value system is purity. But by having foreigners living on the other side of the sea, that is impure, so we want to make sure that nobody, even by accident, ends up on that side of the lake. So are we clear on the setting of the story today? Okay, so just to recap, Capernaum, the Jewish people, they valued purity. And having those people living on the other side of the Sea of Galilee was, in, was, was a danger to them because they feel like this is how we're going to be judged by God because we're going to be associated with the people living on the other side of the sea. But then I want to tell you a little bit about the people who lived over on the other side of the sea, the people who lived in Hippos, Okay. They believed in this philosophy called Hellenism. Hellenism is a Greek way of thinking. And what they believed is that their philosophy was that at the top of the list, if, if the top of the list of the, of the Jewish group was to be pure as possible, the people on the Hellenistic side, these people, their value was human achievements. Human achievements. They valued human achievements because humanity to them was epitome of everything. So I want to show you a slide here. Next slide. Um, so what they valued are things that they put in statues. Like, for example, singers. Like, as a human being, if you could produce a beautiful voice, then that is to be worshipped. So they made a statue of singers because they're so good at, this is a human achievement, they're so good at it. Or the rich. 
If you're rich, right, that means that you know how to work the system. That's a human achievement. We're going to make a statue out of you because you are rich, right? Or, or you're an actor. You could bring emotion into people's hearts by acting something out. That's amazing. That's beautiful. So we're going to make a statue of you. Or you're wise, Everything that I know to be true about my life, this old man taught me something. We're going to make a statue of you so you're immortalized. Or, next slide, you're beautiful. You are so beautiful. So you know what, what I'm going to do? We're going to make a statue of the, in the likeness of your beauty. Or, you're a politician. You know how to sway people. You know how to run this country. You know how to run this city. You're a mayor. You're a governor. You're so good. Or, you're an athlete. You are so strong. You're able to do amazing things with that ball that I can't do. You could grab a ball with one hand and I could barely hold it with two. You know? Or you could knock down some pins. Or you could make a basket from far away. Or you know how to throw things. Right? So these are the things that they valued. Beauty, strength, knowledge. This is kind of more close to our culture, isn't it? Like these are the things that we value. These are the things that we say make you into celebrities, right? Okay, so there's a different style of, there's different philosophy of value systems in both of these cultures, and they're right across from each other across the lake. Okay, so with that information, let's get started with the story. This is chapter 8 of Luke, starting from verse 26. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, there's 12 of them, sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he, went by, he, he was met by a demon-possessed man from that town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Okay, so here's a crazy guy, right? Jesus gets off the boat, and as soon as he steps on shore, he sees this person meet him there. And this person is not wearing any clothes. He's naked, okay? And he has not lived in a home. He's been living in the tombs. Now, this story is not mentioned only in the biography by Luke. It's also mentioned also in the book of Mark and also in Matthew. And they add a little more flavor. They add more details to to this story. So here's a verse from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out. That means he's insane. He's like like a beast. He's, He's screaming out. And cut himself with stones. So he has all these scars on himself, and he's bleeding all the time. Okay, so this is a description of this man that Jesus met when he got to the Gerasenes, to Hippos. Okay, now, remember what I taught you guys earlier. From the Greek culture, as he cuts himself more and more, he's becoming less and less beautiful. He's naked because he can't afford clothes, or he just rips it off, so he's not elegant by human standards, right? He has unkempt hair, he's not presentable to anybody. And so by the, the standards of the Greeks, This man does not belong there. He is the scum of their society. But wait a minute. How do the Jews take a how how do the Jews assess this person? How do they see him, right? Well, first of all, he's unclean. He's not pure. Why? Because he lives amongst dead bodies. He lives in a tomb, right? What else? Oh, it says that he's demon possessed. Oh, that's definitely not a pure thing, right? Oh, what else? He's covered in fluids because he's cutting himself. You don't want to be around this guy, right? And not only that, he lives on the other side of the sea. He is living in the land of pagans. So by both cultures, or maybe in this case what Luke is trying to tell us, is that this man was rejected by all cultures. Now this is where I'll make my first observation, okay? Last week, Pastor Lori gave us a sermon about how Jesus was on the boat, and she, he went through this crazy storm, so big that, that people could get swallowed up by the waters. It's just really, really bad, Right? 
And if you go back before that story, we find out that Jesus just said, hey guys, let's get on this boat and go to the other side. And the disciples are like, okay. So they get on the boat and they go and they go through this big storm, which Jesus knew about and he slept through, right? And so the question that a lot of scholars ask is, well, why did Jesus get on the boat to go to the other side? What was his purpose? What was he trying to accomplish? And as we read this story today, what we're going to discover is that after Jesus meets this guy, he gets back on the boat and goes home. So we could say with confidence that the very reason why Jesus got on this boat was just to meet this person, this person who's been rejected by both sides of the, of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And what does this teach us? This is the observation that I want to make today, okay? The first one is this, that Jesus will go to great lengths to adopt the most unlikely people into his family. Have you felt unloved? Have you felt like you don't meet the standards of the society you live in? Maybe even your own family, you feel like, gosh, I don't feel like I belong there. Have you felt like, there's nothing I could do, I'm just unlovable. Nobody, I don't belong to any group. God would say, but I like you. I want you in my family. I don't care if you can't accomplish anything. I love you just the way you are. Jesus went through the storm just so that he can adopt this person into his family. And that's a huge thing. That, that could be a whole sermon in itself, but the story goes on, so we've got to keep going. Okay, so this is how the story continues. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, he knows Jesus' name. Now, this is an interesting thing because in the Jewish culture, if you know somebody else's name, that means you have control over them. You have authority over them. So a lot of times, God would not let other people know his name because he doesn't want other people to use his name in a bad way. But here, he knows Jesus' name, and this implies that this demon-possessed man is trying to gain control over Jesus. And the thing that he wants control over is what he says here. He says, uh, I beg you, don't torture me, for Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. So Jesus is like, impure spirit, leave this man right now. And he's like, no, get away from me. In the name of Jesus, get away from me. He's using the name of Jesus to get Jesus away from him, which is kind of comical, right? But that's what he's doing right here. And so Jesus, in response, asked this question. Jesus asked, what is your name? <laughs> now, this character, this demon-possessed person knows that the minute he gives his name up to Jesus, then the impure spirits will have to leave. And so he doesn't give him his name. Instead, he gives a title. And you know what that title is? He says, Legion. To the first century Jewish people who read this story, they knew exactly the statement that Luke was making here. He says, my name is Legion because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Now, the word order right there is a military term. There's a specific Greek term that's that military term. Like, it's like ordering, like to give orders. That's, that's exactly the word here, right? And the story goes on. It says, a large, oh, next, next. A large herd of pigs, where we heard that before, right? Herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Now, the word let them go is the word in, in the Greek is episterisen, episterisen, which means to dismiss. Like an army general would say, you're dismissed. That's the word that they use here. This, Luke is purposely using military terms to kind of give us a hint and nudge here. Uh, he said, let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, 
and had rushed down. Now, the word rush there in the Greek is another military term that means to charge, like a charge an army, say, charge, let's go. That's the word right here. Charged them to, to, uh, to rush down the steep banks into the lake and was drowned. Now, when they said that a big army was drowned, immediately the, the, their minds go to the story of Exodus when the army of Pharaoh was drowned in the waters, right? So there's, there's a lot packed in this passage right here that I think in first read we probably won't catch on. But Jesus is actually making a very interesting point here that I think we kind of miss in the first read because we don't understand the culture back then. This is what's happening. So there's a herd of pigs over here, which is known as legion. Remember that? This is the army. When you wanted, the Romans wanted to be recruited into the herd of pigs. The Jews don't like the herd of pigs, right? Here is Jesus taking a demon or a lot of demons and throwing them into the herd of pigs. What is the statement that Jesus is trying to make here? Now, I want you to follow because I think, I think I'm going to lose a lot of people here. What he's saying here is this, okay, that people are never the enemy. People are never the enemy. Now, let me follow me on this thought, okay? What he's saying is there is this unforeseen, uh, unseen force. Oh, here, let's go next one. There's an unseen force that convinced people to redefine good and evil. So this is what's happening. A lot of people in the first century who follow Jesus is saying, Jesus is here to free us from the Roman oppression because that's the people that they were afraid of, okay? And Jesus is here saying, by the way, guys, human beings are never the enemy. Human beings are never the enemy. These Romans, these soldiers, the people of the Legion, they wake up every morning, drink, sip on their coffee, and they look at their kids and say, okay, kids, I'll see you guys later. And somebody would ask him, where are you going to war today? Well, it's because I love my family. And I think that fighting this war is going to help protect my family. Or why do you have to go and take over that, that tribe's crops? Well, it's because I love my family. I want to make sure my family is fed. And Jesus is giving this, this, this perspective of saying, these people are just trying to do what's right in their own eyes. But somewhere, sometime, some time ago, some evil force, and Jesus calls that the demon, the demon came in and redefi- gave them permission to redefine what right and wrong is. Meaning, if it means I have to destroy other people for the sake of the well-being of my own family, then that's a good thing. Whereas God would say, that's never a good thing. But this demon, this unforeseen force, the, the, this force came in and basically said, I'm going to let you redefine good the way that benefits you. In other words, if you think it's good for you, then you must think it's good for everybody. And Jesus says, that's not always true. And this is, this is basically Jesus saying, you see this herd of pigs? You see how they jump over? You know, see how the demons come in? You know, he's like, do you see the whole story? That's supposed to demonstrate for all of us that people are never the enemy. In their minds, they think they're doing what's right. Now, we obviously see, as a side that's oppressed, we obviously see that they're wrong in what they're doing, but they're convinced that what they're doing is right. That they have families, they think, you know, if you were given the same tools and same power, you might end up with the same conclusion. You think that you're doing what's right, but the other side is thinking that you're doing something wrong. And you know what's wrong here? Is that nobody here in this story is following what God thinks is right. Because when God, if you follow God's rules of what's right and wrong, then the world benefits. So that's, that's the second observation in this story. But the story doesn't end here. The story continues. Here we go. When those uh, tending the pigs saw that had happen, uh, what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. They're like, we just saw a whole bunch of pigs like, fall out, and, and let's go take a look. Like, okay, let's take a look. So when they got to Jesus, when they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. Now, let me ask you a question here. You know that guy 
in your town that's always been screaming, cutting himself, doing all these crazy things, screaming, living with the dead people and stuff like that. And you show up to find out what happened to the pigs and you see that crazy guy, let's call him, let's give him a name because uh, they always refer to him as the man who had the demons. So faster, uh, I don't know, Bob, Harry, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Uh, let's not give him a name. Okay, so, uh, right. And okay, you see him and he's sane right? You see him, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and that's usually the, the stance you take when you're saying, now I have a rabbi. You sit at the foot of the teacher. That's what they do, right? And he's dressed now. He's no longer naked, and so you're like, wow, this man is now acceptable to our society again. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a reason to rejoice. In case you didn't know, the answer is yes, it's a good thing. It's, we should celebrate over this. If somebody came to our church who was acting crazy and all of a sudden is, is, you know, that's a good thing. We should be praising God for that, right? But look at the reaction. It says, and they were afraid. They were afraid. Well, what do you mean by afraid? Well, let's keep reading. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man, there's that name again, had been cured. Then all the people in the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to what? To leave them. Jesus, you just did a miracle that was good. Can you please leave? Why, why is this happening, right? Because they were overcome with fear. So he got on the boat and left. Now, what is in, what's interesting about this is that because what we talked about earlier, right, about how we redefined what's right and wrong in our own eyes, whatever benefits us is what's good for us and what's probably good for everybody else, right, that even their moral compass is now shifted. That when they see something good, they see it as something they should fear, and now they're telling the only good thing in this story, which is Jesus, to leave, they're like, there's something wrong with this story. Luke is telling us the story to let us know that something's not right. Something's weird. Something weird is going on in the Gerasenes. And then the story concludes like this. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This man's like, I want to go with you. And Jesus is like, no, you're accepted in this society now. This is where you belong. This is your home. I want you to do the things that I would want you to do here at home. Not come with me. You stay on this side of the lake. Don't come with me to my side of the lake. Now, what's interesting about this is this. This is the third observation. There's something missing from the story that we just read. There's some characters missing in this story that we just read. You know what characters are missing in this story? This disciples. Very good. I heard somebody over here say it. The 12 people who are on the boat with Jesus are never depicted leaving the boat. Have you guys no noticed that? Jesus steps out of the boat, has a conversation with this guy, right? And somebody runs off and comes back with a whole group of people to, you know, the whole time the disciples are never mentioned. And the reason, and the scholars submit that the reason is because these guys, although they had stuff to do, they were afraid to step out of the boat because if they did, they'd be living amongst pagans. They might get in contact with the fluids of this man. They might be seen with the pigs, right? There's so many reasons for these guys not to get out of the boat because they were afraid. They're thinking, when I go home to my family and my family asks me, what did you do? And I tell them, I was hanging with the pigs. I saw a guy that was crazy. And I, you know, right? They're like, you can't come into this house today because you're unclean. The disciples were afraid to leave the boat. And instead, Jesus had to tell the demon-possessed, the ex-demon-possessed man, he had to tell him, to stay here and do the work of God here by loving the people who are marginalized. You know, I want you to do that because my disciples don't want to get out of the boat. And so the question I have for all of us is, what's the boat that we're all in right now that we're afraid to get out of? 
So let me just wrap everything up for you guys. So here are the three things that we just learned today, three observations. The possessed man story, right? From the possessed man's perspective, he feels unloved. He feels he's not accepted in society. And it's not a matter of picking up his mat and going somewhere else because when he goes to the other side of the lake, there's a whole group of people for a different set of reasons to reject this man, right? That he feels unloved. If you're a Jewish person, you're looking at this whole, whole situation, you're, you're looking at the whole Greek side of the lake and saying, no, I don't want to be there because they have a compromised moral compass. I don't want to be a part of that group because they're just, you know, like, they, they redefine what's good and, and I, I, you know, it's just, it just brings oppression to the people around them. But if you're one of the disciples, the issue that you're facing in this story is, I can't get out of the boat. I'm too afraid to step out of the boat and do the things that I'm supposed to do. And I bet that in each of these three stories, these three observations that we made in this story, we could place ourselves in maybe one or maybe all three of these things. Maybe you're here saying like, gosh, you know, Kotz, I came to church today, but I want to be honest with you. I don't feel like I belong. I don't belong in the group I'm part of. And maybe here, I, feel, I don't feel like I belong here at this church. If that's you, I want to let you know this, that Jesus will go through great lengths just to adopt you into his family and say, I love you. And if the church hasn't followed suit in doing that, then shame on us. We want you to feel welcome at this church because we believe that experiencing heaven together means that everybody is included in the family of God. If you're in the second category, you're like, you know what, I live my life according to what I thought was right. But you know what, honest, to be honest, maybe my version of what's right might be hurting somebody else somewhere down the line. That by me doing the things to, do, to protect myself, protect my family, to do all these right things, there might be somebody who's being oppressed because of the things I'm doing. Maybe I'm feeling comfortable the way I'm living right now because it, my comfort was built on the backs of people who are oppressed. And maybe if that's you, then maybe the thing that you need to focus on today is, Lord, would you reveal to me who I'm hurting with the things I'm doing right now? Have I compromised on my moral compass just so that I could be comfortable? If you're in the third category, if you're like the disciples, maybe this lesson is for you where you're saying, I know God has called me to talk to so-and-so, to love on the people that are unlovable, but it's so inconvenient to do that. Or maybe, you know, by me doing this, I might gain a bad reputation with the people back at home. There's somebody I need to talk to, maybe at a bar, but the people in my life could find out, oh my gosh, they're going to be like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? Is that you? So there's three different things in this story that I really want to focus on. And I usually don't have a three-point sermon, but today there's so much that's packed in here that I couldn't, you know, let it go. So there's three things I want to focus on today, these three things. Do you feel unloved? If that's you, then God loves you. Do you feel like your comfort and your righteousness is built on somebody else's backs? If that's the case, we need to ask God to come into our hearts and reveal certain things, surface certain things, and have him check our hearts and be, will be okay with letting God inconvenience us for the sake of loving the people that we, m- we might have been oppressing along the way? Or are you in the third category where you feel like God has called me to do certain things but I'm afraid to step out of the boat? And if that's you, then maybe what we need to do is ask God to, to, to give us courage to do the right things. So what we're going to do is we're going to have the worship team come up. And during the worship team, as they're playing, uh, I want you to be in prayer. I want you to ask God, which of these three things do I really want God to convict me of today? Or maybe you don't want to be convicted of these three things, in which you probably fit into the third category, because that means that you don't want to get out of the boat, right? Whatever it is, ask God to reveal something to you today. 
In the middle of the song, I'm going to ask if anybody here needs prayer. And we have a prayer team that's, that's going to be ready to pray for you. So let me close this in prayer. And the worship team will play. And during that time, I want you to be in prayer asking God, reveal to me what I'm supposed to take out of today's lesson. Amen? All right, let's pray.